Well, welcome to RUF, though, and uh, uh, if it's your first week of the new year, welcome back. Uh, but this is our second week back, and we are in the book of Exodus this semester. And as I said last week, and I, I mean it, I, I do speak hyperbolically a lot, but Exodus probably is my favorite book of the Bible. There's just there's so much here, and I hope that it is infectious. My love of this book is infectious as we go through it this semester. Uh, and tonight... Um, we're going to read all of Exodus chapter 2. So if you would, read along there with me, Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs with water uh, to water their father's flocks. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian has delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughter, daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry from rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. don't know how many of you remember, but this past summer, uh, the whole world was captivated by the story of the soccer team in Thailand. Uh, Twelve players, young teenagers, and their coach who were trapped in a cave 
they entered the cave while the water levels were low and it was monsoon season. And before they knew it, the, fl- the cave was flooded and there was no way for them to get out. And they were in there, uh, I think some 18 plus days uh, as people from all over the world flocked to this cave. Divers of expertise from all the, over the world flocked to the cave to offer their assistance. And the story The story of them being trapped in a cave, the story of them planning and executing the rescue of these boys was just as remarkable as the fact that they were stuck in a cave. And there was an article in GQ that I caught uh, some months after the event, and they recount it like this. The boys and their coach had been deep inside the cave beyond miles of chambers and sumps and boulder chokes. It is not unthinkable that they would not have been found until November After the monsoons had passed and the water had receded and all of them were dead. Even after they were found, rescuing them was by no means certain. To extract exhausted and weakened boys through a black labyrinth of mud and swirling water was technically daring, physically impossible, and logistically overwhelming. Yet dozens of people with specialized, almost esoteric skills traveled from around the world to do so. To try to save 13 strangers of no particular import other than being fellow humans. Those dozens were supported by many hundreds more, the volunteers in yellow and blue who cooked and cleaned and kept order in base camp. And then also by the monks, the holy men, who chanted and meditated and communed with the spirit of the cave. And millions upon millions watched, fed live updates by many hundreds of journalists, staked out at the foot of the Doi Nang Non Mountains. I have no idea whether I'm saying that right, but I gave it my best shot. To sum that up, right, we all love a good story of deliverance. I think that's why that story was so compelling. It wasn't compelling just because there were boys and their coach trapped in a cave. It was compelling because we wanted them to be rescued. There was a possibility of rescue. There was a possibility of deliverance. And people flocked from all over the world to offer their assistance to these 13 people that they had no idea even who they were. But they flocked to the scene to offer their assistance to rescue these children. And so they did. And so it was a great and good story of deliverance as it had a good ending. And so we all love a good story of deliverance. But here's a question. Would you know if and when it was happening in your life? Would you know when and if it was happening in your life? Because in this chapter, what we see in Exodus chapter 2 is such a story of deliverance taking shape. But if you think about it, put yourself in the shoes of the some maybe two million Israelites at the time. They had no idea what was happening. All they knew was slavery and oppression and injustice and suffering. And so for those living it, deliverance was only something they longed for. It was not something they could see, let alone anything that they could feel. But we all love a good story of deliverance. And that is what we see the beginnings of here in Exodus chapter 2. So I want to look at three things here. First, that deliverance comes even when we can't see it. Second, we'll see that deliverance comes even through sin and failure. And then finally, we'll see deliverance comes when we cry out to God. All right, so the first one here is that deliverance comes even when we can't see it. And again, as the readers of the story, we saw this in Exodus chapter 1, we see it again in Exodus chapter 2. As the readers, it's clear to us, God is at work. 
God is doing something here. God is on the move. God is going to put something together and it's going to be amazing. We see that. We get that. But again, the Hebrew people have no clue. And as the story reads, the people of Israel will have no clue until the end of chapter 4. Till the end, some 80 years past. Uh, We know from the New Testament that Moses was about 40 years old when we get to verse 11. And we know that he was in exile in Midian for another 40 years. So for 80 years, God is miraculously crafting the story around this guy named Moses. And no one knew it. Not even Moses. And so for 80 more years of an already almost 400 years, there's Hebrews born into slavery, growing up in slavery, dying in slavery with seemingly no end in sight. That's their story to them. That's all they see. But again, as we read it, as the reader, we see all the while their story was radically changing. And their story is radically changing by nothing exciting. It's completely ordinary. Two Levites from the tribe of Levi, descended of Levi, they marry. They do what married people do, and they have a son. You have a loving mother that loves her son, doesn't want to give him up to the genocide. That's been ordered by Pharaoh. She protects her son. Then uh, a watching sister follows to see what will be done to. Then a bathing princess comes into the scene and rescues him. You could not make up a better story than this, right? All these insignificant details, but when you read the story of Exodus 2, you realize that the story of Exodus is nothing short of miraculous. We saw in chapter 1, Pharaoh determined to destroy this people. He was going to kill every male child of this people, but you remember what happened to them. The more that he oppressed them, the more what? They multiplied. Does it make sense? He has this plan of genocide to kill the males, but preserve the daughters. Who ends up being the heroes of the story? Daughters. The same royal house that decreed death becomes one of the greatest instruments of life that the world has ever seen. This story is nothing short of miraculous. That's what we get to see as we kind of take in the story. But again, all the while for the Hebrew people, what is it for them? Silence. For Israel, it's silence. For Israel, it's is God even there anymore? Did God forget Abraham? Did he forget our father Joseph just like the pharaohs did? But again, as the reader, we get to say, we get to answer that back to them. Oh, yeah, he's there. He's in all of it, right? He's he's in all of it. In all of it, there's God's secret and ceaseless care for his people. We get to see this beautifully unfold. This is what we call God's providence. His providence, his providential guiding hand. No detail in the story is insignificant. There's a marriage, a birth, and a bath, and they are swelling with significance. God working everything for his own purposes. And so we see there's continuing darkness, yes. But the continuing darkness is only part of the story. It's not the whole story. And we have to see that because it reminds us that for us even, right, that when the continuing darkness seems all too often to be the part of our own stories as well, But at the same time, this story shows us a lifting of the corner of that curtain, pointing them, pointing us to the fact that no matter where we find us, ourselves and our stories, there's always another story going on. That's God's providence. There's always another story going on. Long time ago, I heard a quote in a different setting, but I loved it and I've run with it ever since. 
It was this. Narrative fuels lifestyle. And it wasn't, a, wasn't a literature class. But narrative fuels lifestyle. This is what it meant. This is what the person meant when he said this. Um, he said, we're all believing. We are all. Every single one of us in this world is believing some story about life and about the world and about ourselves. And whatever story you're believing, you're living. Because we live the stories that we're believing. Our stories that we're believing about life define the ways in which we live. And so the question for all of us is always, what story are we believing? What story are we living? And the reality for most of us, if we're honest, right, is that we're prone usually to only believe those stories that are right in front of us. We usually let the stories that are right in front of us, the most tangible, the most visible, we let those define the action. And we can oftentimes, when we do that, lose sight of the fact or the belief that there's another story going on. This was Buddy the Elf's problem, right? Never knew I'd work Buddy the Elf into uh, a sermon. But I did Ricky Bobby one time, so why not Buddy the Elf? Um, This is Buddy the Elf's problem, right? The story that he was living and believing as an adult male, human male in the North Pole... He lived and believed that story so much he could not see the obvious signs that he was not an elf. But rather a cotton-headed ninny muggins, right? I had to go there, sorry. Um, right, but that, that's, he was so ingrained in the story, he couldn't even see what was so obvious to everyone else that he stuck out like a sore thumb. You, know, you think about yourselves, a lot of you came to college... And maybe you were just ready to start the story of life. And you were just kind of ready to let the waves of college carry that story wherever it would carry. And you were excited about that. Maybe a little nervous, but you were just going to ride the waves and see where it went. Some of you came to college with this determination, right? This determination to pour all your effort and all your energy into controlling the story as much as you could. What you were going to be involved in, what was going to go on your resume, what jobs you would apply for, what job you'll get done, what spouse you're going to marry, all these things. Others of you have yet to be able to shake the feeling that there's something in your past that is still controlling your story, whether it's your own failure or someone's failure against you. Regardless of where you find yourself on that spectrum, right, your story is evident because you're living it. You're living it in your relationships. You're living it in the way that you date. You're living it in the way that you give your time to class or don't give your time to class. You're living it in the way that you talk. You're living it in the way that how you make friends. It's all evident. It's what makes you happy. What are the things that at the end of the week made you happy? What are the things at the end of the week that made you despair? That'll lead you to the story you're believing about yourself, about life, and about the world. And for yet another chapter here in Exodus chapter 2, for yet another chapter, God makes no attempt to explain the long dark night. But he does, through the story, dare to suggest and dare us to believe that he's at work in all of it. Every single minute, every single second, his loving and caring providence being uh, executed as he wills it to be carried out in our lives and in history. So deliverance comes just like for the Israelites when we even can't see it. And most likely it always is what we can't. See, But let's move on to the second one and see how this further works itself out. Deliverance deliverance comes even through sin and failure. Deliverance comes even through sin and failure. 
Not only is God at work in all the details of the story, he is even at work. He doesn't stop working when we, like Moses, royally screw it up. Get the pun? Royally, he was a prince. Anyway. Again, you could not have made Moses' story up any better. You could not have come up with a fairy tale any better than this. That he's threatened with death upon birth. His mother hides him in a river. A princess finds him and loves him and takes him as, his own, as her own son. He grows up in the palace. He is literally a prince of Egypt. Disney got it right to that degree. He is a prince of Egypt. And you even have uh, Stephen, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, in his sermon that he preaches before he's stoned, he says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says that Moses believed this moment when he struck the Egyptian to be divinely appointed. Moses knows who he is. It says he identified his people. He went out to his people. He beheld the burdens of his people. He knew he was a Hebrew. He goes out and he sees his fellow Hebrews. He sees them being oppressed. And he says, this is the moment God has made me for. And I will take it into my hands. And he strikes down the Egyptian. That's a whole different sermon to talk about how foolish it is for him to think that he was going to take down an entire empire by himself. But it's part of the story. But let's be honest here. I don't know. I don't know how you've treated this story in your life if you've heard it before. Let's be honest that we're kind of cheering at this point, aren't we? Like, get him, Moses. Yeah, right? Like, if it's an HBO series, like, this is, like, one of our favorite parts, right? Like, Game of Thrones. Like, we like it when the bad guys get theirs. And we almost kind of think, like, okay, here's, here's the moment Moses is going to come out, like, kind of like Clark Kent. He's going to take off the glasses. He's going to take off the tie. And he's going to be, like, the Hebrew Superman, Right? But what happens? The, cl- the story pl- pretty clearly implies to us that he was wrong. He looks this way. He looked that. When do you look this way and that other than safety crossing the road? When you're trying to do something bad. Moses understood he was doing something wrong. And so he ends up fleeing and fearing for his life. And so he goes from being the prince of Egypt to being a redneck Midianite shepherd. Interestingly, in Genesis 46, there's one thing we were told about the Egyptians. They hate shepherds. From prince of Egypt to Midianite shepherd. So think about this, though. Think about the story. Take it into context. By taking the law into his own hands, Moses single-handedly delayed the deliverance of Israel by 40 years. Humanly speaking, by taking this into his own hands, he delayed the deliverance of God's people by 40 years. That's how bad he screwed it up. 40 more years of slavery and oppression and injustice because Moses did this. Yet, what do we see in exile? Well, we see in exile as he gets to this well, Moses obviously has a zeal for justice. Okay, He can't help himself is what it appears. Uh, He takes a very big risk in confronting a bunch of shepherds. But what does God do this time? God rewards him. In the midst of his failure, in the midst of his exile because of his failure, he finds safety, he finds a home, and he finds a family. And we see God's ceaseless care for him just as it was for his own people in Egypt. And so, again, we get this picture of Moses emerging from the palace with with somewhat of an arrogance of thinking, okay, this is what it must be for. I must be this awesome. Yet, in Numbers chapter 12, God himself calls Moses the meekest man in all of the earth. 
What changed? I would suggest to you 40 years in Midian changed. 40 years in the wilderness Moses had. Because God had no intention of raising up a brash, kill a man with bare hands type of deliverer. And so what God was going to do was first bring Moses to the end of himself. Moses, I'm doing something in you. I'm doing something with you. But you're not going to do it until I bring you to the end of yourself. And the thing is, is we're not going to actually, Moses and and we are not going to see this clearly until next week in chapter 3. But we see, we get a hint of it in in verse 22. You look at verse 22, we're told that he named his son Gershom. Because he said, for I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Interesting. Why is that significant? Well, it tells us that Moses' heart has changed. He's beginning to understand something. The author of Hebrews actually uh, gives us a hint of this in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is this great chapter where the author goes through all this catalog of heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. Moses is one of them. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author tells us this. Um, He says, "Of, of all these heroes of the faith, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So in other words, what we're being told about the Old Testament heroes of faith is that when they looked at their lives and they looked at what God was doing, they realized that they were being brought through something to something much greater. They all realized that they were being brought through something to something much greater. And so this is the question I ask you at this point. What do you think your biggest barrier is in your life to believing that? To believing that wherever you find yourself tonight, wherever you have found yourself for however long you've been in college, wherever you find yourself um, in what your family history is, what high school was like for you, You name it. What is the biggest barrier for you to believe that God has been at work in all of that the whole time? What do you think is the biggest barrier to believing that God is at work in your life, no matter where you find yourself? To believing that God can and will do whatever He wants in your life. What keeps you from believing that or seeing that or feeling that? What is it that you look at in your life and you say, there's no way God was in that? What do you look at in your life and you say to yourself, you don't want to believe that God was in that? What are the things, what are are the, the God things in your life? What are the things in your life that you do look at and say, that's God at work. Thank you. You know, it's easy. It's easy to be happy. It's easy to be genuinely happy. And genuinely encouraged and genuinely comforted when your friends have good dating relationships or when your friends are getting engaged and getting married. Right? Maybe it's easy. Maybe it's not. But how do you think to yourself, where do you think to yourself, where is God when no one's asking me out or when no one's going out with me? Or where is God for you when he or she broke up with you? Is it so easy to see? You know, maybe it's easy at times for you to see God at work and to feel His blessing and to feel His grace when your friendships are strong and when you're growing in your friendships. But 
What do you think when, when you feel lonely? Where is God for you when you're lonely? Where is God for you when your friendships go hard and, or cold? Where is he when you sinned against somebody? When you failed miserably against somebody? We all do this. We all have a story of failing someone. Where, where is God for you when someone hurt you and you can't forgive it? Where is God for you when your parents told you that they didn't love each other anymore? God is at work. Maybe it's easy for you to feel that or see that when you're growing in your faith, when you're learning about the Bible, when you're trusting what God is doing. But where is God for you when you can't even seem to remember the last time you even opened your Bible? And so all that to say, all these questions to say, if, if Exodus is the pattern of the story, which I'm going to try to suggest to you this semester... If it's the pattern of the story, therefore it's our story, then what we're being told here in Exodus chapter 2 is that God never stops working. And you can't stop Him working. Your sin, your failure, other people's sins, other people's failures, they can't stop it. They can't. He is at work even and maybe even especially when it makes no sense. He's at work. So deliverance comes. Even when we can't see it, it comes even in in and through our sin and our failure. Finally here, deliverance comes when we cry out to God. Look at verses 23 through 25. They're, They're rather amazing, aren't they? Because we again, we're seeing this drama unfold in real time as we read it. All these tiny details, the Levites married, they have a son. He's raised under unique circumstances in the halls of royalty. He commits murder and is exiled. He marries and he has a son. But again, all the while, what is still happening? God's people are suffering mightily. And the question, the reality of the question for many of the Hebrew people had to have been, where is God? But verse 24 tells us. Tells us that He heard them. That He remembered His promises. That He saw. And He knew. So this tells us two things to close with. The first one is that deliverance comes when you cry out for rescue from slavery. Deliverance comes when you cry out for rescue from slavery. All the commentators point this out that in verse 23, it's not just that they're crying out. It's not just that they're in pain. It's that they cry out because of their slavery. And they, their cry for rescue from slavery comes to God. In other words, you get to see the beginning of the deliverance of God's people. And you want to know what sets the beginning of the deliverance of God's people. It's when their crying out became a prayer. That's it. When their crying out became a prayer. It's the beginning of their deliverance because it brings, into, it brings God into the situation. For them, in real time, in real space, it brings God into the equation of what was happening in their lives. It's their acknowledgement that no matter how dark the story was, it belonged to God. And so their cry because of their slavery for their rescue from slavery came up to God. And so their cry, they cry out to him. So deliverance comes when you cry out for rescue from slavery. But secondly, deliverance comes 
from a God who knows. Now don't pass over this. Deliverance comes from a God who knows. Knowing in the Bible, right? Great youth minister joke. Knowing in the Bible, far beyond mere comprehension of facts. We read in in places in the Bible, like the beginning of the Bible, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. Biblical knowing. It's an action. It's an intentional entering into intimate relationship with. It involves a coming down to. It is something that you do. To know someone in the biblical sense is to do something. And spoiler alert, we'll see it next week. Exodus chapter 3 verse 7. God will tell Moses to tell the people, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. He knows he's going to do something about it. And this is what this is what I want you to see as we close this and get ready for next week. This is what I mean when I say that their prayer Brought God into the situation. Now, does that mean it was at that moment God said, okay, now I'll do something? We know that's not true because he's been doing something ever since he made the promises to Abraham in Genesis 15. He's been doing something in the 400 years that they've been in slavery. He's known all along what he was going to do. So, what do I mean when I say that their prayer brings God into the situation? He was at work long before they cried out, let's trace it. He was the one who preserved Moses and brought him to the palace. He was the one who told Jacob to take all of his sons to Egypt because of the famine. He's the one who worked the evil of Joseph's brothers to gain Joseph um, fame and fortune in Egypt to become the second in command that he might protect his family. He's the one who chose Jacob Chose to give Jacob the blessing over his brother Esau in the womb. He's the one who promised elderly, childless Abraham a son. He's the one who preserved Noah and his family in the flood. He's the one who gave Eve another son when one of her sons murdered the other one. He's the one who gave Adam and Eve skins when they sinned and they didn't know how to cover the shame of their nakedness. He's the one who said in the glorious community of the Trinity, let us make man in our own image. He's the one who knew and ordained each and every single detail before time even existed. Now comprehend that for a second. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one for whom, through whom, to whom all things exist. And now get this. He's the one who delights in you so much that he comes down. And he enters in with. He so cares for us that he condescends to make his mind-blowing, eternal, sovereign, providential work something that we can comprehend in time and space. And you know how he does it? He enters into time and space. He condescends to us in entering our story. Why? 
Because they asked him to. Why did he do it? Because they asked him to. Need a shot in the arm for your prayer life? There it is. The infinite, eternal, omnipotent God comes down into the story, into their story. Because they prayed and asked him to. You see, right here in Exodus 2, what God was doing was showing forth what he was going to end up doing eventually on a cosmic scale to relieve not just worldly suffering and oppression, but spiritual suffering and oppression. And he would do it when he would once again come down and suffer with and for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I can put it no better than St. Augustine himself, who said it like this. How you have loved me, O Father, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us. Father, your son became both victor and victim for us. He became priest and sacrifice for us. Out of slaves, he made us sons. Because though he was a son, he became a slave and served us instead of himself. Rightly, my hope is fixed upon him. And he will heal all the diseases of my soul. Where would Augustine get a story like that? It'd be a great story, wouldn't it? It's an invitation to all of us. Let's pray. Father, we do, at times, perhaps some of us even continually, cry out for rescue from our slavery. Father, we're enslaved to so many things. Some of them of our own doing. Others have been inflicted upon us. And there are times, if we're honest, that we can see no way out. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe that you are at work in all of it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.